Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the final third podcast. It is Monday. It is our news and predictions episode where we go over all the biggest news that has happened in the soccer world, both on and off the field. Maybe even go into some predictions, even though with all the things that have happened this week, we might not have time for that. Uh, my name is Ajax Burrow. I'm a fan of West Ham United, which went terribly today. I might talk about it today. I don't know. Minnesota United, which uh, is about to kick off in about 30 minutes here. Uh, I'm recording this on Sunday, so the national game, I guess everyone else knows the result. I don't know yet, so that'll be fun. And the U.S. national teams, which on the club side, you know, U.S. women's and men's national teams are getting reps at their club teams. Some of them rising their stock, some of them lowering their stock. Uh, overall, pretty good, except for the U-20 women's team, who I think are they're at the World Cup. I know that. Uh, I think they beat Ghana in their first group stage game, are playing the Netherlands as I speak right now, and at the time of recording, are down 3-0 to zero because our genius coaches at U.S. Soccer decided to rotate a lot. Which is, you know, yeah, you know, it's fine because we already have uh, the knockout stages wrapped up. We, we already are clinched. What was that? We're not? It's It's not clinched yet? And this is a, a game that we should be taking seriously in order to build a tournament momentum for the players that might make it up to the, the regular senior U.S. Women's National Team in a couple of years. And instead, we are now raising our chance that we crash out early. Great, great. I'm, I'm not actually super mad about that because it is still a Youth World Cup, but that's where that is right now. Uh, usually, I'll be joined by Jack, my co-host, uh, but he is going on a cruise right now. I think he might already be on it uh, he flew in today so i, I want to say that's the case but usually he's here uh he won't be i'll be taking over but he, he did record some pre-recorded uh, segments about games about his hot take so i'll cut to that later on uh, he's usually a fan of chelsea which we'll talk about u.s national teams minnesota united atlanta french national team i, I might be forgetting one uh minnesota aurora minneapolis city He's a fan of a lot of teams, but it's just me today. And so either this is going to be completely off the rails, which I am leaning towards believing, or it's going to be a nice chill episode. But I can't remember the last time I recorded a solo episode where it was a chill episode. It's it's usually always been kind of frenetic, to say the least. Uh, but yeah, if you guys enjoy this show, Jack's going to be here in a couple of weeks again. I might get a, a guest spot uh, for next week as well because I don't want to lose my mind talking to myself for two weeks straight. Uh, but if you are a fan, check us out on FinalThirdShow.com if you want to find all of our social medias everywhere that you can listen to us on. That's going to be there. Or at FinalThirdShow on Twitter. We're going to be tweeting a little bit. Me probably more than Jack since he might not have any internet for the next two weeks uh, while he's on that cruise. So... Yeah, it should be a very a fun, fun time. Let's get into the news just right away. Let's just let's just peel the bandit off. So I can, starting off with our hot takes, uh, I'll, I'll cut to Jack now. He has a hot take for us. He'll also explain what the hot takes are all about. So Jack, take it away. All right. Hello, everybody. This is Jack from the final third. Obviously not there for this episode and probably won't be there for next week's episode either. But I am jumping on here just to give some thoughts on some of the matches this week really quick, like, you know, a bit, a little bit, five minutes. But first, I wanted to give my hot take of the week. 
you know, it's a new section we're trying out, trying to give uh, some some sort of hot take that we think isn't regularly agreed with and trying to defend it a little bit. And mine is that Atalanta are going to do good this year. They're going to do good. I think they're going to get a top four finish and make their way back into the Champions League. Bit of a disappointing finish this last time around, finishing eighth, so no European competition this year. But they have built a solid squad that, you know, was pretty good. Uh, I, I was going into the first game of the season a little bit not so optimistic, given a lot of transfers out, a lot of injuries, a lot of suspensions. But, you know, they they looked pretty good today. And especially, I want to say, Adamola Lookman looked great. New signing for Atalanta. Ruslan Malinovsky looked lively in his cameo. Mario Pasalic was great. Duvan Zapata looked better and back to his normal self instead of, you know, being... He, he had a bit of a rough season last time. This this year, this game, he looked good. And uh, Juan Musso had some had some good saves, good goalkeeping. A few, few uh, dicey moments, but I think that overall, Atalanta are going to do fine this season. I, I think they'll finish fourth, and I think that's fine for them. You know, right now they're in second. I'm fine with that. Just uh, below AC Milan, last year's winners. Uh, 2-0 win over Sampdoria. Sampdoria might not be the best side ever, but I do trust that Giampiero Gasparini is going to put together maybe a little bit of magic this season and get them that top four finish. All right, thank you, Jack. I also agree that I think Atalanta are going to be okay. 538 has them still in fourth place uh, for their simulated seasons. That being said, Sampdoria, also in their model, are, you know, looking to be around bottom of the table, like literally like 16th place. So, you know, Jackson talk a little bit more about Atlanta later at Atlanta, not Atlanta. Nobody wants to talk about Atlanta United, uh, but that will be later. My hot take. And this is U.S. men's national team themed. I, I We don't really talk about U.S. soccer a lot since there's so much stuff going on right now, but. I like having U.S. soccer-centric hot takes, which means that my hot take this week is that I think that Brandon Vasquez should be on the plane to Qatar. Everyone knows that the striker situation at U.S. soccer, at U.S. men's national team, is really, really dire at points. We have a lot of players who are okay, decent even, good even, but no striker in the past two to three years has really stuck their claim to be that starting number nine or to even be on the plane to Qatar, right? Where we are right now, Jesus Ferreira is among the best in MLS right now, has performed decently well for the U.S. men's national team, and Greg Berhalter likes him. That is the trio that you need to be on the plane. So really, Jesus Ferreira is the only lock. But I will say that I think Brandon Vasquez, striker for FC Cincinnati of all teams, historically bad, but very good this season, should be on that plane. He is in the running to be uh, the MLS Golden Boots. Now, what, is that, what does that necessarily entail? Well, it's impressive because no other American, since Wondolowski and I don't even know when, I think want to say like early 2010s, I'll look that up, uh, but not since Wondolowski has a, a, an American player won the golden boots. 
And now I'm looking, I'm looking. Chris Wondolowski, 2012. Wow. I, I, I know my MLS. I know ball. I know ball. And so the fact that he's up there, second only to a Jerusi of uh, Austin FC, is impressive, right? And, and, and Hayes Ferreira is also up there, which is why, you know, he should be on the plane as well. But the fact that Brandon Vasquez is putting in goals like this, and not only putting in goals, but putting in pretty well, when you look at the stats, it, it tells a story that 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 really puts into light how valuable he can be. According to a second spectrum, uh, he is in the 20, 95th percentile, sorry, and expected goals per 90 minutes among MLS players with at least 1,000 minutes. So this means that Brandon Vasquez not only, you know, it converts shots really well, but he also is in the right spots. He has good off-the-ball movement that can create space and get him in the spots that can lead to goals, which is A, something that Berhalter looks for. That's why he likes Ferreira. Ferreira is very good at that. And B, the fact that he's doing this at also a pretty young age says that he has room to grow, and this is just the beginning for him. When you look at uh, a pretty direct comparison, Ricardo Pepe, who we were all very excited about, his stats are much better than Pepe's. And yes, he's about four to five years older than Pepe was last season in MLS. But when you compare R Ricardo Pepe's 2021 MLS season to Brandon Vasquez's, it's really impressive what Brandon has done. Not only has Brandon scored more goals in less minutes, but his XG to goal uh ratio whatever is a lot closer which means that his true shooting percentage is very very good and so overall i think when you compare the two we should be hyped up brand vasquez yes he is 23 but he's also only 23 so he has a ton of room to grow and when you compare his form literally the second best striker in mls right now to the other strikers I can only think of Jesus Ferreira and maybe Pifak, who are in better form. Sargent is not doing well with uh, Norwich City. Uh, who else? Uh, DK is injured. Haji Wright did not impress Burhalter and, you know, is in Turkey. He can still make, make a shot up. Um, Pepe is not doing well in Augsburg still. Uh, I'm trying to, I'm racking my brain for other strikers. Josie Altidore right no, no obviously so i think brian vasquez at least should be in my theoretical striker shootout uh in september where i think berhalter should invite like six to seven strikers who are on the edge of making it to to, to qatar and just have just a training camp where they just go and just try to prove that they're the best and whoever is the three best gets to have those friendlies and prove that they belong and so that's why I think Brandon Vasquez is good. You know, 15 goals, you really can't go wrong with that in MLS, especially at his young age and especially against very, very good competition with other strikers. So, yeah, I always go along with those hot takes, but that's where that is. All right, let's get into some of the other big, big news that has happened in the past weeks. Uh, starting off with probably the biggest news story. It's been all it's been all over, not just like the soccer spaces, like on Twitter, on Reddit. But it's just, it's been on the news. I've seen it a lot on TikTok. Manchester United are a dumpster fire. Let's talk about their 4-0 loss to Brentford FC this past weekend. Manchester United off the heels of a pretty, pretty bad loss to Brighton. Uh, and so they go away from home at Brentford 
in order to hopefully get their season on track. But that's not the case. It starts off with Joshua De Silva scoring in the 10th minute. And it was it, it was a decent shot. But what a lot of people are going to say and what is absolutely true is that David De Gea should have parried it. Like he gets a hand to it, but it slips through his fingers. Like he's got butter on his fingers and it goes in. Right, it went to bottom bottom right. If you if you're the striker, uh, De Gea stretches out. He gets a hand to it, still slips through, and it, it it's extremely demoralizing. It's it's extremely extremely demoralizing. You could see how it affected the Manchester United players. Like the intensity kind of dropped off even after ten minutes after that goal, and it didn't take more than eight more minutes until uh, Matthias Jensen scored a, a, a bit of a, a bad giveaway from i want to say it was either mcguire or martinez one of the center backs uh maybe it's martinez actually De Gea plays it out to them and it gets pressured off and then who else but of course jensen putting it away that's in the 18th minute and things have gone bad to worse and then ben me scores off a header assisted by ivan tony in the 30th minute and in the 35th minute uh, Brian B- Mbuemo, I always forgot how, how to pronounce his name, but Brian, I'll call him Brian, assisted by Ivan Tony, makes it four to nil off of a counterattack from Brentford that Manchester United were caught sleeping on. And going to the first half, it is four to zero, four nil to Brentford FC. Manchester United are looking terrible. And luckily, like some of the subs, I, I mean, <sighs> To fast forward a little bit after this entire ordeal went down, Eric Ten Hag literally said that he wanted to sub off the entire team at the end of the first half because of how poorly they played to give up four goals. He made three substitutes that ended up being all right, especially Rafael Varane replacing a pretty poor Lissandro Martinez. Uh, but it, it's just bad. And let's give credit to Brentford before I go into Manchester United because there's a lot of things this week that you're right to be mad at, at least in the soccer world. In real life, there's a lot of good things happening, surprisingly. But let's talk about some good things that happened in this game, particularly with Brentford FC. Brentford and the way that they uh, went out was really, really good. Thomas Frank had a game plan. They stuck to it. And Brentford, I think, when I watched this game, they really knew how to pressure, to press and counter. I mean, look at that fourth goal, right? I believe it was who? I believe it was either me or Jansen who basically kind of bullied the ball off of the Manchester United uh, attackers, pressed the ball out, and it was a fast break. And Ivan Toney uh, caught the back line of Manchester United sleeping and passed it over to Mwemo. And it was a pretty easy goal past, past De Gea. Like, that is how clinical they were. That fourth goal is the perfect, the perfect example of what Brentford did well. You know, in the build-up to this match, uh, the Brentford coaching staff really try to put into the players' heads like how they should press against Manchester United, how they should pressure them, uh, to the point that Ben Mee told The Athletic at uh, full-time, quote, we knew Manchester United would be unsure from last weekend and maybe lack confidence. With the determination, pace, and power we've got up front, we pressed them, like, you know, like I just said, and got in their faces, and they didn't enjoy it at all. Uh, the coaching staff even told them to pressure David De Gea. Whenever he tried to play it out from back, that was a pressing trigger. And so Brentford would swarm forward and try to, 
you know, get to Haya to mess up or try to pressure the center backs who weren't expecting them to come in and press them to give up the ball, which is exactly what happened for that second goal. Perfect, perfect game plan. Uh, and now I'm going to throw it to Jack. We, we gave Brentford there too. I think Ivan Tony, I, I was expecting him to, to not really perform this season, but if he can like get these assists like he's, he has been, I, I think he'll still have another successful season. Uh, here in the in the premiership uh, but jack what did you think about the players four goals in 25 minutes in a span of 25 minutes brentford scored four goals against manchester united uh at the community stadium in brentford ivan tony with some assists josh De silva 23 year old midfielder he looked really sharp in this game he looked great only played 62 minutes but one of the best players on the pitch. Uh, ben Mee looked really solid defensively. And uh, David Raya had some great goalkeeping moments. Like I, two Spanish goalkeepers on either side. De Gea had a nightmare. Really, really poor. Made an error, another error leading to goal. His distribution isn't there anymore. His shot stopping isn't great either. His distrib, his, I don't know. He, I, I think, I think Manchester United should have kept Dean Henderson, but Looking at those two Spanish goalkeepers across from each other, David Rye was just miles ahead of De Gea in like every category. I think the only player who looked actually halfway decent for United was Marcus Rashford. I thought he was pretty good. He created some chances. Definitely one of his better games. I will also say Tyrell Malachia. I, I can't, I don't know how to pronounce it, but he was looking good when he came on at halftime. This Manchester United squad is not good enough. Nowhere near good enough. They've got to make a lot of changes. And the board is a lot to blame. But these players just don't look like they want to play for the club. Uh, so I think, man, you need a full scale rebuild. You know, and Jack is completely correct. Jack is completely correct. De Gea disaster class, right? Uh, first goal completely his fault second goal uh he he dived the wrong way either it took a deflection or it wasn't good but like distributionist was not good from De Gea and that's why foot mob gave him a 3.9 and obviously you don't really look at foot mob to be the the end all be all but still but still just not not good from him honestly I think his contract is up at the end of the season you know I think it's time for I think it's time for him to go and he's been one of Manchester United's best players if not their best players over the past five years so to see him kind of fall apart it really is the beginning of the end there but overall all the usual suspects sucked and we can talk about this game all we want but it's also important to talk about what this game really represents and what it means like going forward because it means not a lot of good if i'm being honest like when i watch this game the one thing that kept on going through my mind is this is not how Eric Ten Hag wants to play. Like, where is the high-line defense? Where is the high tempo? Like, where is, you know, something I, I think about when I when I watch Eric Ten Hag teams of the past, these Ajax teams of the past, which I liked, was that there is a high, almost intensity, right? There's a lot of running. You have to be physically fit. And now you look around, and what is Bruno Fernandes doing out there, Right? What is Fred doing out there? Martinez looked out of sorts. So did Maguire. Even Ronaldo. Not even Ronaldo. It's you know, par for the course. Ronaldo wasn't performing well. So he said, you know, he wanted to sub everyone off in the half. And 
you know, can you blame him? Because the players, it, it just seemed like there was no desire out of them. I, I don't understand why Maguire is captain. I don't understand how these players can be so mentally fragile. This is something that people have talked about, that even after, you know, you go down one to nil, it's still against Brentford. And, and obviously, I gave credit to Brentford. They are a good team. Uh, Raya is a great, great goalkeeper. So are half their squad, pretty much. Really, really good. But still, you should have the mental fortitude to power back and grab goals. We saw some of that, uh, you know, this this weekend even with Arsenal still powering their way through for a 4-2 nil of 4-2 win over Leicester City. Yeah, Manchester United can't do that, right? And so a, a lot of the onus does belong on the players, right? When you have such big salaries like them, you expect them to show desire, right? There are reasons why Manchester United aren't doing well. Players are one of them. But there's also other player, other, other aspects to why Manchester United have fallen from grace so hard since the Sir Alex Ferguson days. And you, you could also blame, you know, the, the manager, you know, Eric Ten Hag, because in the first game, why do you put Ericsson up front? Why did you choose to play McFred? Why do you still have Maguire on as the captain, as a starting center back, when he's so clearly out of his depth, when he's so clearly a liability to that back line, right? So, so, so y- you, can, you can look at the manager for, for making mistakes, maybe not getting in his, his, his ideas for his team enough for them to execute it. But again, like those players, like I have, there's no way that Eric Ten Hag wanted them to look like this. In his head, he probably had an idea and knowing him, knowing how good he is, it probably would have worked if you had players that weren't like Bruno Fernandez, who I feel like we kind of understand that he doesn't really take criticism very well. He doesn't improve at all. Rashford, I feel like, has not been improving. Sancho is a good player. Whatever. Christian Eriksen looked pretty bad this game. Fred, I have nothing to say about him. But yeah, players are big. Managers kind of there too. But when you look at the main culprit, and I think a lot of Manchester United fans will agree, and a lot of neutral fans will agree too, is that it is the board, it is the owners, it is the Glazers who are the root cause for a lot of these problems. Why do we have the players here? Well, it's because of the board. Why do we have so much managerial turnover that we can't really rely on a manager to come in and save the day because there's so many different remnants from these players from these playing styles from previous managers well that's because the board is very trigger happy when it comes to firing hiring coaches and so we're left with this mess right when you compare the liverpool recruitment to this it is night and day when jurgen klopp got hired not saying that you know any of the past manchester united managers aren't even close to jurgen klopp's pedigree but when he came in they knew that was going to be shaky, and they didn't win a, a lot of trophies to begin with. But they stuck with him because he had a plan, right? Uh, FSG stuck with uh, Jurgen Klopp because he had a vision. And transfer window after transfer window, they started building pieces into the way that Klopp wanted to have this team be built. And they got rid of players who didn't fit that, that billing. And now... They are a juggernaut, one of the most entertaining and best teams in the league. 
and you compare it to Manchester United, where they panic by, they 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 wasted an entire season uh, with Ralph Rangnick, even though Ralph Rangnick very clearly said that we need ten players to to get back on track because it's just not good enough, right? And now. They panic by. That's what they do. They get big names who might not necessarily fit the system that they want to play, but will appease fans, will sell jerseys. Look at Ronaldo. Look at Fernandez. Look at Jaden Sancho. Yes, those are good players. But what else? You know? What else have they been good for? Liverpool, you know, Darwin Nunez was not a superstar when he came in, the same way that Jaden Sancho was. You know? Right? Darwin Nunez wasn't at Clear C. Diego Jota wasn't really that big of a deal compared to Cristiano Ronaldo coming. But they fit the system much, much better and were plug and play compared to this Manchester United team. It's insane how much wrong Manchester United have done in the past few years when it comes to recruitment, when it comes to you know wasting a season with Ralph Ragnick. And now we see reports of them wanting to get Rabio. And Arnautovic. And when one of your major issues is the fact that you have a bunch of egos in your locker room that don't really gel together, that 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 think they're better than they are, that don't really care, are, are, are not really in it for the long run, don't want to put in an effort. Rabio, whose mom has literally created almost destructive locker rooms with the France. And Arnautovic, who I do not even have to go into even he's a West Ham former player not a good locker room presence and that is the board solution that's the board solution when defensive midfield is sitting right there in order to get fixed when Cristiano Ronaldo is still taking up all of your wages that is your solution right right like when you look at the manager and the board, like they spent an entire summer wasting away because they wanted to get Frankie de Jong, who, A, let's be honest, is a good player, would not solve all your problems when you still have Fred and McTominay being your defensive midfielders, right? I, I keep on saying this. They wasted a year with Rangnick, and now they're panic-buying players. So what is the plan? What is the point? I don't think there is. And so when, when you look at the long-term effects... I think unless Eric Ten Hag by himself, because it's obvious that the board is not backing him either financially or more importantly, giving him enough leeway. I think this is where Manchester United is going to be. Ole getting second place with this team a couple seasons ago might have been their ceiling because the rebuild that needs to come into place here, I really do not believe can or will happen when they're under the Glazers. Their way of running this team, of sapping it of, of financial uh, well-being, is, is not, not conducive of a successful team. Until the Glazers stop running this team like a tanking NBA franchise, then Manchester United, honestly, get used to 6th and 7th place. Because if you don't change the players enough, like Rangnick wanted, you're going to end up in the same place. If you don't back the manager to give him the changes that you want, you're going to end up in the same place. If you panic by mediocre players in order to appease a fan base or to paper over the cracks, 
you're going to end up in the same exact place. Manchester have lost all their away Premier League games since February. In those seven games, they have scored twice and conceded 21. That's all I have to say about that. Also, uh, fantasy Premier League hint, don't transfer in, in any United or Liverpool players. I've been perusing some of the Manchester United uh, forums, subreddits, Twitter pages, and there is a non-zero chance that just like the Manchester United-Liverpool game last season, uh, they try to cancel it have, it, have it get canceled by protesting until it just stops. And that means that there's no FPL game between uh, uh, United and Liverpool, which means you won't get any points. So that's a good hint for you. Let's go over to Jack to talk about Brighton versus Newcastle. Brighton versus Newcastle. This was the first match I watched because I think that both of these two teams are going to be really big challengers for not obviously Champions League or anything like that, but I think for top seven, getting maybe that last European place, I think one of these sides could do it. And they both played really well defensively. A little bit of work needs to be done offensively, but man, Brighton are looking really good. Alexis McAllister and Moises Caicedo were fantastic in that midfield pivot. Uh, I thought Pascal Gross, after that first game, it would be tough to uh, top it. He still looked pretty good in this game. Lewis Dunk, Joel Veltman, and uh, Adam Webster held down the defense well. And uh, Robert Sanchez, he, he only made one save throughout the match, but he, he looked pretty good with claims and uh, making sure that he could, you know, be involved where needed. He did a good job as well. And on Newcastle's side, man, that midfield was looking good. Bruno Guimaraes was creating chances. Uh, he was getting fouled. He was winning fouls, getting free kicks, made some recoveries, some interceptions. He, he was looking pretty good. Joel Linton, you know, that move to midfield we saw last season did him a lot of good. He was looking pretty good. Few nervy moments with some dispossessions, maybe not winning all the duels, pretty poor in the air but he was doing really well at distributing passes out so i think that's worth noting as well and joe willick he was looking good as well put in a pretty good shot as well uh in the 40th minute that was eventually saved uh and the defense of newcastle you know they would have probably liked to have uh matt target in but you know dan burns fen botman fabian Schar, and kieran trippier held down the line well but Nick Pope, the new meme, because if you've seen it, everyone's been posting Nick Pope all over. Uh, he deserves man of the match for that. Five saves, kept a clean sheet, kept Newcastle in the game. He's the reason why Newcastle walk away from the MX Stadium with a point. Great from him. All right. Thank you, Jack. I think very good, uh, uh, very good teams. These two teams are, even though I think Neil Mape, I just saw a rumor uh, he might be on his way to Nottingham Forest, I think. That'd be that'd be crazy. So two good teams. Unfortunately, one seems to always beat West Ham. Not looking forward to that game coming up. Whatever. Uh, let's talk not about any European soccer for a little bit. Let's talk about MLS All-Stars. Real quick story here. Uh, as you may well know, uh, we, Jack and I, live in Minnesota. I've been born and raised here in Minnesota. Fans of Minnesota United. And so it was... To our delight that this all-star game was being hosted by Minnesota United at Allianz Field here in Minneapolis and St. Paul. And I went to some of the events 
and it, it was a lot of fun. I, I think that this was a very, very well organized event. We had events even uh, uh, near the University of Minnesota, where Jack and I go at Ninth Street Coffee. Shout out, love it, love it there. They hosted, um, I, I think, some kind of community event where there was a tournament and also a clinic for for people with like professional soccer players coming in to to lead it. So really cool to see. Uh, it was awesome to see like just a bunch of like the the support come out uh for a lot of these events like there's a Khalid concert in downtown thinking near US Bank Stadium in downtown Minneapolis a ton of people who aren't even soccer fans went because Kay Khalid's a, a great singer so to, to get like that exposure was awesome uh there were a ton of other events that were happening there, there were pickup games happening with like a bunch of like reporters and podcasters around extra time uh soccer podcast had a, had a live showing at Blackheart, the Cooligans, which I'm really sad I had to miss because I love those guys. Uh, I also had a, a live podcast. It was really awesome. It, it was really awesome to see. There was the soccer celebration. Even the pre-match festivities were amazing. A ton of people got free stuff. Uh, uh, some uh, amazing, uh, amazing performers. Like a local Minnesota rapper, Nerdy, uh, had a per performance at the soccer celebration outside of Allianz Field in the Great Lawn. And to see like, to incorporate like a lot of Minnesotans there as well as like, you know, Sarah Fuller introduced Khalid. Like th that's really, really cool to see people embrace Minnesota. And you, you, you heard like the players, you heard uh, some of the reporters and podcasts come in and say like, Hey, Minnesota's been great. This is a great facility uh, that we're here. We're here at in, in uh, Allianz field. It's a great city. It was beautiful weather too. Like it wasn't too hot. It was, it was really, really nice. And so, yeah, uh, Thanks to Gianna Belcastro of the Women's Sports Matter podcast. I got free tickets to go to uh, uh, the Skills Challenge, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, Hany Mukhtar won it for MLS. That was a lot of fun to see all those challenges, to see, you know, Chicharito, and, like, all these, like, stars. Carlos Vela, uh, Hector Herrera, you know, play right in front of us. I just named a bunch of Mexicans. All right, I'll, I'll name uh, uh, Mukhtar and Brandon Vasquez and Reynoso and Dane St. Clair. But to see them, like, right in front of me, like do stuff that you wouldn't really expect them to do, you know, try to do a bicycle kick or shoot into like a, a ski ball looking machine. That's a lot of fun. So if you have the chance, definitely go look up the highlights. MLS one is really cool. There's also goalie wars, which I'm really fortunate to have, have watched where the goalkeepers are literally like 30 yards apart and just chucking balls at each other, trying to score on each other. Really, really fun. I think a Minnesota United 2 player, because it was like MLS Next Pro players, goalkeepers that did it. I think the MNFUSC 2 player won that. So overall, a lot of fun. Uh, it, was a, it was a really good time, really good presentation. I saw walking through the concourses, a lot of faces that I recognize. So really, really cool. Uh, thank you. Thank you if you guys like traveled here to Minnesota. Hope you guys liked it. And thank you for coming and contributing to our tax base. Ha ha ha. Uh, but yeah, even the game, it was a very intense game. It got a lot of different people who aren't necessarily interested in MLS, like EPL fans, a lot of Liga MX fans, uh, to come to the game and really see what it's all about. And, and maybe this is their first time looking at Allianz Field, and maybe they'll want to check out some other local soccer options, whether it's Minnesota United or a team like Minnesota Aurora, who had a very good uh, showing. I saw a lot of people wearing Minnesota Aurora stuff in the stands or Minneapolis City, you know. The bigger support for local soccer, the better, really. 
Uh, it was really cool to see everyone care a lot. You know, Carlos Vela had an amazing goal. Raul Ruiz Diaz made it two to zero. I'm forgetting the Liga MX player that made it two to one. But it was really, really fun overall. Uh, I'm glad to see MLS get the win, obviously, but just a, a really good way to cap off the week. Now, Don Garber did say that it looks pretty likely that we're not going to have uh, the same type of all-star game next year. Kind of sad, kind of understand with like the League's Cup uh, happening between Liga MX and MLS. It, it might be a little bit of a overkill if you have so much MLS versus Liga MX. So there's a question on like what should the all-star game look like next year? Because it is a lot of fun. And I don't think that they should end it, especially because... You know, it's going to be in D.C. next year. Audi Field's going to be a, a, a great time. Really excited to see uh, how it evolves. But there's talks about going back to the East versus West format, which, okay, yeah, I, I think that'd be fun. You know, I think the biggest thing is that it gets more All-Stars, right? Having, I don't even know how many All-Stars, like, like 22, a little over 22 All-Stars. That's good. But there's a lot of other players who deserve to be on this team that aren't because there's just not enough spots, even though their play kind of dictates that they should be there. And I think East versus West, that, that kind of uh, all-star game gets you that. But it, it really isn't as exciting. I don't think the players would take it as seriously because there's not as much pride on the line as like MLS versus League MX. And I don't think it's going to get as many like casual fans or even anyone else other than like hardcore MLS fans interested in watching it the same way that you know, MLS vs. League MX does, or potentially other formats. Uh, another format people threw out was USA versus the world. So I, MLS used to have this where they had all the US-born uh, based players on one team and all of like the international players on the other team. That's pretty cool. Uh, I, I think that that could be like a cool rivalry thing. Uh, I do want to say, I feel like at this point in, in the league, uh, I think the international team might be a little bit better because of the DP rule now, so that, that might not be as close. But there's also MLS versus U.S. men's national team. Might be hard logistically to convince the U.S. men's national team to come play us, even when it's not in a international window. So might not be good, but it, it would be exciting. Either, either one of those, I think, would be pretty exciting since it would be a new thing. But I still don't think it's going to get too many like casual fans, other than like the, the U.S. men's national team version of that. Uh, I don't think it's going to get a lot of fans watching. Uh, we can go back to the preseason European tours, tours playing you know teams like Juventus, uh, Bayern Munich. I don't know. I, I blank Manchester United, which it would be exciting. Actually, no, it wouldn't be ex as exciting because you know no one's going to take it seriously, especially not the preseason European teams. But it would be very watchable because that would get a lot of you know, casual European fans to watch. However, my idea, and nobody, literally I have not seen a single suggestion for this, which is probably why it's a bad idea. But I think that the thing that we should do now as like a league is play other leagues all-stars, right? There are some leagues that are, are like uh, spring to fall calendars, right? Not like fall to spring. So there's some some leagues where I think they're going to be in the middle of the season, but maybe you can convince them to fly out for a week and like come play us. M maybe it has to be a bigger thing in order to make it worth it for them. But like, you know, why don't, why don't we play the Canadian Premier League, right? Canadian All-Stars versus MLS All-Stars. That'd be fun. The A-League in Australia literally has an All-Star game. They played Barcelona this year, got crushed. 
screw it. Invite them to come to the U.S., maybe meet them halfway in Hawaii. I don't know. <laughs> but, but you know, invite them. And, like, there's always talk about, like, what's better, Australia or MLS? Let's find out. The J-League. I think they play fall to spring, maybe. Screw it. Invite them. The Brazilian League will destroy us, but I think that'd be fun, too. Overall, just... I think like this this kind of league on league rivalry is pretty exciting and maybe there's like a 1% chance that this could happen but I think it'd be cool like I want to see a league all-stars versus MLS all-stars I'd love that I would love that for sure all right let's move on to the next story which is Real Madrid winning the UEFA Super Cup Real Madrid, in case you're, you were living under a rock, uh, won the Champions League last season over Liverpool. Eintracht Frankfurt won the Europa League over Rangers. And so they, in this uh, Super Cup, faced off each other in... Oh, man, I'm, I'm going to completely butcher like where the stadium was. I'm actually completely forgetting. Uh, it's the, the... Oh, that's not going to help me at all. Uh, it is Helling. Oh, that's that's absolutely Finland, isn't it? Give it to me. That's Finland. Tell me. Uh, regardless, while that is loading, I'm sorry for that. Jeez. But Real Madrid won over Eintracht Frankfurt two to zero. First goal from uh David Alaba, very very good player, part Filipino too. Fun fact, really cool. I I think uh, Kevin Trapp could have done better on that uh, on that goal. Uh, kind of a, a very easy goal for all but a score uh but yeah Kareem Benzema kind of missed a, a missed a few chances a, a little uncharacteristic for him uh but in the 65th minute him and who else but Vinicius Jr. linked up and got him a goal who else was it going to be really but not much to really say about this game other than the fact that Real Madrid look very good I highly doubt that they they won't win La Liga this year considering how kind of in disarray some of the other teams are uh but especially because of how good they've looked even though they they were down one to zero going into halftime against Almeria this weekend in La Liga they came back two to one and in this game against Eintracht Frankfurt who aren't pushovers themselves won two to zero in pretty dominating fashion I there was not a single second not a single second where they played that I didn't feel like they were they were, were gonna lose so much so that I think it's a perfect encapsulation of, of, first of all, this player and also just what happened this entire game. Uh, game. But I think I want to say it was Bohr, uh, the striker for uh, Eintracht Frankfurt, kind of broke away from a Real Madrid on, on, a, on, on a break. And Militao, center back for Real Madrid, was tracking back. He falls, but while he's falling... He does like kind of a flip, like his back hits, hits the ground, but he like uses like his momentum to rebound back up and without like missing a beat, he flips back up and continues to pressure Boar off the ball. Like that is how relentless, first of all, Militao is great, great center back, still pretty young, only 24, uh, but Real Madrid, that's a perfect way to describe it. We're re relentless in this game. Thought Casemiro, Madrid, and Cruz, one of the best midfields in the game right now, if not the best, dominated. Just, just you know, played Eintracht Frankfurt off the field. So very, very good game for Real Madrid. Congrats on winning the Super Cup. You should have seen like the players. They 
like Real Madrid, it was just another day in the office to them. That's how serious they are. That is how clinical they can be. So yeah, that's Real Madrid. Not much to say there. Uh, let's move on to the next story. Uh, moving from some La Liga news back to the Premier League. <sighs> Jack, this one is for you. He he unfortunately uh, left before he can record this part. Uh, but kind of funny, kind of funny, kind of sad. Uh, but I'm talking about Chelsea versus Tottenham or how I wrote it down in my notes. Anthony Taylor ruins Chelsea. So the way that this entire game starts off, uh, it's Chelsea versus Tottenham, uh, two teams that Jack and I ha have very close to each other in our preview. I have Tottenham in third, Chelsea in fourth. Jack has that vice versa. Uh, and so it's going to be a very, like, I think, close match. Obviously, it was going to be close. They're two very good teams. But I was very curious to see how like the the, the new players on on each side kind of gelled, and right away Chelsea uh, found their footing, and their 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 new players found their footing as well. Kula Bali scored off an assist from Cucurella, right? Uh, I think it it was a, yeah it was a cross from Cucurella, and Kula Bali found space for himself and scores off of uh, that corner. It was awesome. It, it was a good goal going into uh, the first half. It's one to zero. Richarlison gets subbed in for uh, Sessegon. And that does mean that Tottenham move into, I think it was kind of a, a, a back four in, in response to uh, what's happened. And then this is when all heck breaks loose, right? Romero was kind of just going after Havertz this entire game, uh, getting pretty chippy. Uh, I think if I'm remember correctly, there was also some like like yeah that Reese James was kind of going after Son to begin the to begin the, like the first half. So a, a lot of back and forth, but eventually Havertz gets fouled by Bentoncourt, and the referee Anthony Taylor, who you may well know, has done Chelsea dirty a lot in the past I, and it's not even me saying this as a Chelsea fan I am not a Chelsea fan if there's one team that I actively cheer against it's Chelsea because I like to make fun of Jack but <laughs> but the simple fact is that Bentoncourt did foul Havertz it should have been a call but it was a no call even after VAR looked at it VAR by the way the referee that was doing VAR this uh, this game was Mike Dean if that gives you any indication about how bad this refereeing team was. Uh, but off of the no call, Boyberg equalizes. And suddenly you're like, how does Anthony Taylor miss it that bad? And in the, the chaos and whatever, like uh, uh, Hoiberg is celebrating so, so loudly and Conte celebrates in Tuchel's face. And there's kind of a spat. They had to get separated very very intense it was very funny it was very funny to see them go after each other because it wasn't the last time in this game that that's happened great content great great content uh reese james uh gets the lead back because uh, a back four just doesn't work for spurs surprise 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 the back three is a lot better and they, they move back uh to it right after the the goal got scored uh bring on perisic for son but it's a very easy goal for Reese James, assisted by new signing Raheem Sterling. Uh, and then some subs. Conte gets injured, unfortunately, as always. Uh, and then 
despite Cucurella's hair getting pulled by Romero, I believe it is, uh, some, some, some bad stuff happens. I, I, I'll be honest. Like, uh, Cucurella's hair does get pulled, and play goes on again. Anthony Taylor doesn't call it, and Harry Kane equalizes. Tuchel and Conte get into it again after the match uh, because that was in the 90-plus 6th minute, and that was, that was game. Two big non-calls leading to goals. Kind of cost Chelsea the game and gave Tottenham, who, in my mind, did not play as well as they should have, you know, it, it gives them a point, a point each. And, yeah, I mean, this is crazy. Uh, Conte posted something on, on Instagram, kind of playfully jabbing, jabbing at, at Tuchel. They were pretty heated at the end of the match, had to get separated again. Uh, according to some news reports, Antonio Conte barged into Mateo Kovacic as he went down the tunnel, which has now led to the Croatian arguing with the Tottenham coaching staff. So just a lot of just arguments between the two teams. Good rivalry that's getting kind of built between Tuchel and Conte, I suppose. Um, but the main story is not how the two teams performing, though I will talk about that a little bit. The main discussion between this entire, entire ordeal was Anthony Taylor, right? Anthony Taylor has screwed over Chelsea in the past. Anyone could really say that. It's mostly true, even though I think Chelsea fans might exaggerate that for effect. But really, right? Anthony Taylor, like, what are you doing? What is he doing? How does it get this bad? How does the... the I, I know a lot of leagues like to say, like, oh, our refs suck, oh, our refs suck. I really don't think it's as bad as the FA gets. MLS gets bad, but there's also a lot of retroactive punishments dealt on, a lot of, like, whatever. It gets dealt with, kind of. Even in, like, Liga's kind of bad. Bundesliga's here, meh, it, it, it's still better. I think it's still better. I, I watch a lot of, of those leagues, especially Syria. I want to say that the, the, the FA's English referees are just, just one of the worst in any sport, really. Right. Because like above all else, what is a referee supposed to do other than just like make sure the rules are followed and that it's a fair game that's played by the playbook, the rule book, whatever. It's to protect the players. Right. You're, you're, you protect the players because at the end game, at the end of the day, it's just the game. At the end of the day, you're going to go home. The 22 players are still going to get paid, whatever. But if you can't protect the players from injury, whether it's serious or just kind of painful, then what are you doing as a as a referee? Right. What's the point of you having that job? Like, I, I don't understand how you can wake up in, in the morning and just be okay with making that mistakes without, without serious reconciliation with the fact that you have continuously screwed over not just Chelsea, but a bunch of other teams in the past in ways where it almost seems like you are either incompetent or there's some nefarious things going on, which I'm not going to say, obviously, because I'm not going to... Comp I, I, I think it's a lazy excuse to say that they're paid off until we know that they are paid off, in which case, obviously, that changes things. Right? If you can't protect the players, then, like, what's the point? Like, it makes the game so much less fun when you can have referees, A, lose control of this entire game, like I mentioned, like, all, like, those, those chippy fouls in the beginning of the game, and B dictate what happens in that game the fact that he didn't call the cucarella hair pull the havertz uh uh foul on him from bentoncourt directly led to two equalizers now that's not to say that chelsea should have done 
were powerless to this. I mean, they they did regain the ball. Like the momentum was there for them to 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 concede, but they still could have defended a little bit better. But still, but still, Anthony Taylor was there, right? And so I think the big picture takeaway from this was that the FA needs to invest more into referees. You know, holding them accountable in the case of Anthony Taylor, because this is not the first time that this has happened, right? But also to support them, to give them support, and not in a way like to, to be like, oh, they, they didn't do anything wrong, but to give them resources to improve, whether that is part of holding them accountable. But I think the most important part is to retain younger refs. We know that there's a referee shortage, not just in the USA, but in the UK as well, because referees, younger referees, don't like to get berated by parents, don't like the crappy pay that they're getting, and so they, they don't continue past uh, the grassroots level. But we need to have younger refs who are passionate about refereeing, who are passionate about improving the level of game of refereeing in this sport, and to replace dummies like Taylor, like, I'm serious. Like, I, I, I want to see a new generation of referees come up and kind of displace the, 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 I don't think Taylor's a boomer, but like, you know, the, the older guard that, that re- of referees that continuously get jobs because, you know, the referees aren't going to hold themselves accountable, right? But if you put pressure on them because you have a, a new crop of referees that are, you know, good, who are, hopefully getting well compensated and who are passionate about uh, doing well, then I, I think we could see some real change in refereeing in the UK and in the US even, right? But that all starts with, you know, making sure that, that referees are well supported on the grassroots level, that they're not just getting, it's not just them versus an entire 50, a 50 person group of angry, angry parents to compensate them well. And so until that happens, I think that, that, I think that is what needs to happen in order to f- solve this issue because that is the root cause, is bad referees. It starts from the ground up. You need to make sure that you have the best referees and it's just not happening right now. But also Chelsea, like, yes, they were screwed over. Yes, the, the, the level of officiating should have been better. Yes, the, they should feel hard done. I, I, I'm caveating this a lot to say that I also think that Chelsea shouldn't act like they got robbed and there was absolutely nothing that they could have done. And I know that there, there's a lot of Chelsea fans that listen to this podcast. I know you're out there. I know you're out there. But I need you guys to understand. I, I bet you guys deep down understand that Chelsea's a good team. I'm saying this as a West Ham fan. That's right. I think Chelsea's a good team. That's why I have them in my top four. That's why I consistently have them doing well in the Champions League, in the Premier League. But there's one thing that needs to be understood. I feel like since Tuchel has taken over, and especially as he has integrated his play style, is that Chelsea could do better. Not better than Tuchel necessarily, but they could play within Tuchel's system better. And that, that, that's, just, that's just a fact. That is just true, objectively. Because when you look at last game, they won off of a penalty. Cool. It's Everton, though. It is Everton, though. You should, beat the, you should beat Everton, even if it's away from home. Even if Goodison Park is a hard stadium for Chelsea to play in should still be beating a pretty down bad Everton in this game, right? Spurs were not playing well. This game could have easily been 2-0 to zero at the end of the first half, and it probably should have been. Uh, you look at the XG, you look at the possession per half, and it was pretty clear that Chelsea 
dominated, dominated throughout the first half, were very good throughout the second half. And yet, what happens? Those chances, those possessions, lead to nothing. You bring in Raheem Sterling, good, he gets an assist. Maybe you need an, an out-and-out striker, right? Maybe you need to actually think about your signings before, I don't know, spending 90 million pounds on, on freaking Wesley Fofana and maybe thinking about the transfer. I'm getting off a topic, but, but you know what I mean, right? The attack should have been more clinical because at the end of the day, the point of soccer is to get balls into the back of your opponent's net, right? Doesn't matter who scores it, doesn't matter whatever. But the fact that Spurs have played that poorly you know, which is uncharacteristic of them compared to like where they where they're usually at level performance wise, performance level wise. I don't, I don't even know what I'm saying. The fact that you couldn't string anything more than two goals, one of which happened to be while Spurs were in their back four, probably could have done more than that too. By the way, maybe it was three to zero or three to one by the time you you get to Reese James's goals. It it just should have been better. It should have been more clinical. And yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I, I feel like Chelsea are still on the right track. I think Tottenham are still on the right track. Anthony Taylor does not deserve a job after how many times he's screwed up. And I think Chelsea still need to improve a little bit. They, I mean, they, yes, they are in a rebuilding point. That's why I said that I don't think they're going to be as good as Tottenham this year. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, I'm still not totally convinced of what I've seen from Tuchel's side. Just not a lot of progressiveness, I should say. All right, Jack is here, and he's going to talk about Atalanta versus Sampdoria. And finally, I already talked about it in at the front of this episode with my hot take of the week, but, you know, Atalanta versus Sampdoria. Great game for Atalanta. Good start to the season. They had a disappointing run last time around. So seeing them in this game, doing well. Very good to see. Great goal by Raphael Toloi. Captain's goal at the very uh, to start off the scoring. He was looking pretty good in this game for a you know thirty one year old Italian center back. Uh, Mario Pasalic providing the service on that one, and then at the very end, Adam Lookman scored. Was offside in around the eighty fourth minute, but in the ninety plus sixth minute, he did get his name on the on the score sheet with a debut goal. I'm excited to see more from him in an Atalanta shirt. I think he looked pretty promising in this. And, uh, you know, give us more Melanovsky. That's that's what I like to see. It was it was a it was a great game. Uh, Coop Miners, Mila, Derone all looked great, uh, as well as center back uh, Meme Okoli, 21 years old, performed very well. I, I think this might have been his first appearance for Atalanta, actually. And if so, uh, he definitely impressed on that appearance. So. That's that's all I've got for for this one. I'm going to be on a cruise, so no Wi-Fi for for quite a bit of time. So I'm probably going to be away from soccer for a bit, but I'm excited to be back on the podcast whenever I can. And, you know. See ya and bye for now. Okay, let us talk about Barcelona. Uh, The other story. Big, big story this week uh, was the, the FC Barcelona and their registration issues. A lot of levers, economic levers getting pulled. Uh, you, you may well know that registration has been very woeful throughout La Liga. A lot of teams, because of the FFP financial fair play restrictions on La Liga, 
have not been able to register some of their new signings. I think even U.S. men's national team player Luca Della Torre was not fully registered until by Celta Vigo until this very past week, right before the debut, the debut game uh, for him uh, with Celta Vigo. So, and, and that's because the Liga has very strict rules on like how much you can spend uh, in, in comparison to how much profit you bring in, uh, stricter than any of the other top five leagues in Europe. Right, and so Barcelona have signed a lot of players like Lewandowski, Rafinha, Kessier, Christensen, others. Right, and so they really did not have the income to justify spending that much, and so they have been selling a lot of like their their uh, Barca TV. Is it? Uh, I'm, I'm forgetting uh, uh, what the actual Barca Studios it is. Uh, that they own in order to raise money, uh, trying to sell players as well, uh, selling the naming rights to their stadium, Spotify, Camp New now. So it's crazy. Like, like they are legitimately like almost, almost over speculating into the future, like selling like future value in their club and in their company in order to make purchases right now. And it's gotten to the point that FC Barcelona wanted to annul Frankie's Frankie de Jong's contract, bringing him back to the 2019 version of the contract because they say the current contract that he was on was made criminally. There's criminality involved because the last president involved that's, that made that contract was involved with criminal activities. It, it's crazy. And let's not sugarcoat it because I, I know a, a lot of people are giving Barcelona credit for it because they're making it, they're somehow making it work. But when you, when you pull back the curtain, Frankie received, Frankie de Jong received 4 million euros gross last year, right? Which is only 35% of what he's entitled to. Now, he should be, he, he, he should be collecting 19 million euros gross when you're when you adding in uh, the deferred wages. And so... I know that's a lot of money. That's a lot. That's more money than we'll ever make in our lifetimes. A lot of people, but that, that is still a player who is giving his work, he's giving his labor to this club, getting, putting value into this club, who is not getting what has been agreed upon, what is his worth, and that's really, really crappy. The way that they're pushing, you know, pushing these players like PK. I know PK doesn't need any money, but. He was basically offering to play for free for this club. And this is not how a club should be run at whatever. We have spoken our truths on this. Everybody has like the same take about FC Barcelona, which is that it's just too much spending. They're screwing over players. They want to offload good players in order to, to, to buy players that do they really need all these players? Yes, they definitely need Lewandowski, Rafinha. Those are great players, but do you need to bring in Alonso, Fernando Alonso, not Fernando Alonso, Alonso, oh, why am I even forgetting his name? Chelsea, you know what, I, you know what I'm freaking talking about. When they have okay left backs, okay right backs, you know, you have Kunde and Christensen, but you also have Araujo and Garcia, who are good players. Like, it's a lot of spending. It's a lot of spending. Anyways, anyways, uh, but there's a Spanish radio claim 
uh, that said that Barcelona jointly set up holding companies to which it paid 150 million euros of its own money to buy its own assets to inflate the value of its sale. This was like one of the levers that they pulled in order to make those registrations work, but La Liga actually rejected it earlier this week as it is not quote-unquote new money. So Barca must now pay 37.5 million on tax on this payment in addition to the rest of the money that they need to raise in order to get those registrations uh, for their players. So uh, Barcelona activates uh, its fourth lever. The club then sold a further 24.5% of Barca Studios, which handles a lot of like, their digital contact. I think they did the NFT stuff, whatever. It's owned by Barcelona. Uh, to the GDA Luma Fund for 100 million euros. Now, Barcelona Studios and face value is not worth that much money. I'll be honest, because that, 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 that is a lot of money to be worth 400 million euros for coming out. Nobody really knows anything about, but I, full credit to Barcelona. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's, it's nothing uh, nefarious, but who knows? But let's be clear here. It is not just uh, Barcelona who are having re registration issues, but it's all over La Liga. I mentioned Celta Vigo. Real Batista were unable to register their six new signings and had to activate an economic, economic lever themselves by reaching an agreement with an investment fund to sell a percentage of its subscription and future ticket rights for next five years. Now, after Barcelona and uh, Real Batista pulled those economic levers they got the thumbs up from la liga uh and now barcelona were able to register all of, almost all of their new signings i think they're way on kunde because they need to lower the, the wage bill uh, uh still uh in order to uh sign kunde on officially but in the past like couple months they've raised 868 million euros and this is still with uh serginio dest of the u.s men's national team uh, Pierre, Pierre Emmerich Obama Yang and Frankie de Jong potentially being sold. So that's even more money. I'm sure that that, that can help lower the wage bill and get some money infused into the club. Uh, and hopefully, you'd hope, get put into like Frankie de Jong's deferred wages that he rightfully deserves. Like it's crazy. I, I'm still on this. It is crazy how poorly Barcelona has treated its players. And there's quotes that back this up uh, from The Athletic. Quote, all the players know that the club is a mess from the inside, but it's always been like this historically. Many in the dressing room are happy and relieved to see top internationals arriving, provided their own salaries are not touched. Right? And they're, they're fine like being competitive. It's okay for Barcelona to be competitive. But to screw over so many players who have given their all, right? Busquets and freaking PK have given their all to this club. And what have they had to to come back with? Nothing. Legitimately, legitimately getting screwed over. You know, it, th th there's some union kind of lesson here to be learned, but whatever. It, it, it reminds me a lot of Rangers or Leeds, where they they sold off a lot of their their, their future. Uh, they tried to invest a lot. And it just didn't work out. And th those two teams ended up getting relegated for two very different reasons. Rangers because of financial insolvency. Leeds because performance, whatever, whatever, they went down.
I, I just really think that the bubble will eventually pop because Barcelona, it's almost like a, a, a gambling addiction at this point for them. And not to really like try to like dissect what's going through Laporta's mind or whatever, but it really does seem like Barcelona, in order to survive as Barcelona, need to always competitively be amazing, right? The, the risk of them not performing at the top levels to miss out on Champions League, that might be worse than spending $868 million on new players, on infrastructure, on debt this past summer because of the money that they'll miss out of their reputation tanking because of that. And so Barcelona like, legitimately need to be too big to fail because if they fail, if they begin to falter, if they begin to disappear from their reputation, well, there's no really way they can get back because how they're gonna have to let go of players. They'll get worse, and then they'll kind of be stuck in mediocrity. And so this is a gamble that could work out. They could get all these players. They could start winning Champions League, uh, La Liga, start raking in prize money. They sign Messi next year, and suddenly the the, the t-shirt sales, all the the associated costs get them a lot of money and out of this hole. But also, that could very well not happen. Because that is all this that's really all relying on the fact that they will be competitive. Which I think Chavi is a great coach. I think he's a good coach. I think he's an amazing coach. Whichever superlative you want to use. But is he going to be enough to first of all handle like the 10 new signings that they brought in and be be good enough to guarantee them the financial security of doing well in the Champions League, of doing well in the Liga. If he fails the same way uh, that Ronald Koeman failed last year, then it's going to be a really bumpy ride for Barcelona because they've already invested this much. That's, those are sunk costs at this point. And to recoup that, it's going to be extremely, extremely hard. And so I think the bubble will pop. Either all the spending will catch up to them, or this will continue and it'll get to them eventually. Because I, I really don't think this level of conspicuous consumption can follow a club when it hinges so much on competitive success, and that competitive success is not guaranteed. It just isn't. We've seen Barcelona teams come and go, wane and come back. Unless you have Messi, the best player on your, in the world, on your team, you can't guarantee titles every week. Every, not every week, every year. And so it's just really tough to see them succeed. right? But, but this is to say that La Liga is also at fault here. right? Uh, La Liga wants to push for the CVC deal, which is basically a deal that's worth 2.1 billion euros between La Liga and CVC which will see Spanish clubs receive additional funding in exchange for a stake in a new company that will obtain the country's broadcast revenue and sponsorship rights for the next 50 years. Basically, conspiracy theory, maybe, but also very, very likely, is that La Liga has this, these very strict FFP rules in order to financially pressure clubs into signing this 2 billion euro deal, which kind of ties all the, the, the clubs in a, in a very tough spot, uh, especially like mid-table clubs, because not all clubs are Barcelona that have like economic levers that have uh, Barca studios to sell off. 
Real Betis having to sell off a, a percentage of its future subscription and future ticket rights should not be happening. And I, and I understand there's a lot of people who are like, yes, FFP is good. Yes, it, it, it helps. It helps make sure that, you know, we don't have another Derby County, for example, where, where financial insolvency le leads them to get relegated and kind of fall from the wayside. Makes sense. It, it makes perfect sense. But the thing about FFP is that it, just like a, lo a lot of things, it hurts the middle class a lot and doesn't really help, doesn't really hurt the top half of teams. Barcelona have Barca Studios. Real Batiste don't. And so even if Real Batiste aren't terribly run, they still can't try to grow, you know, naturally and buy better and better players because maybe their income isn't there. But that's not to say that their income and, and like expenditure ratio is like completely off. It's just to say that they want to buy new players, better players, so they can kind of bet on them getting better in the future. And Barcelona can do that. That's literally what they're doing right now. But because Real Batiste does not have as much capital as FC Barcelona, they are left to try to raise money on their own. And Real Batiste might not even be the, the, the hardest done by this. You could look at, I don't know, Mallorca, Celta Vigo. Do you think they have a lot of, of money to throw around? No. So FFP is limiting them. Meanwhile, Real Madrid and Bar Barcelona could still sign players because they have that capital. So it, it's just... Barcelona are obviously in the wrong in the situation, but La Liga has really hamstrung a lot of those mid-table teams. It's made it hard for them to really succeed in a way that is conducive to competitive parity. They can't sign good players, and so Barcelona can. Barcelona and Real Madrid will continue to do well. What's the point even, right? Anyways, let's wrap things up with a couple of uh, smaller news stories. Arsenal uh, look good. Uh, Javier Jesus Two goals and then two assists in their win over Leicester City. I'm really excited to see how Jesus kind of fits into this Arsenal team. Uh, he, he, he said that uh, he didn't get a lot of playing time uh, when he was with Manchester City. So to see him kind of, you know, play pretty well, even against Crystal Palace, very, very uh, interesting to see. And I don't know, I, I think Arsenal do have what it takes to make that, that top four push especially now that they have like a very good number nine. Probably, honestly, probably the best number nine performance I've seen, you know, from an Arsenal player since I'd have to go way, way back. That is for sure. Jeez, Giroud. It, even poor that, that is a very complete performance. I'll, I'll be honest. So, wow. Okay. Uh, Serie A and La Liga kicked off Barcelona, tied Rio Valcano, uh, Almeria, had a surprise lead against Real Madrid, but Real Madrid came back 2-1 to one to win it. Serie A also kicked off in Italy. Fun times, Milan and Inter Milan uh, had some of their uh, early season wins. Atalanta also got a win. Uh, they play AC Milan coming up soon, but uh, uh, Jack talked about Atalanta a little bit there already. Uh, yeah, I, th I think it should be a very spicy Serie A title race. Fiorentina also got the win. Juventus has not played yet. They they play a Sassuolo uh, sometime soon. I don't even know. When, they, when do they play? Uh, I guess Monday. I guess when this comes out. So you can watch that game when it comes out. Uh, what else happened? Uh, Timo Werner scored on his debut back in RB Leipzig. 
kind of a, a crappy goalkeeping mistake, but you know, he's back and maybe Bundesliga is his, uh, is his level. Uh, West Ham suck. I just wrote that down. West Ham, I woke up early to, to watch West Ham play and they got, they got bounced one to zero to Nottingham Forest who have not been in the league since the nineties, who are, are a good team, are a good team. But we should be beating them even if it's away from home. I oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I love West Ham. I love West Ham. I love all of my teams. Maybe not equally, but I, I do like West Ham. And this is just very, very frustrating. I, I think the big thing is that West Ham just need players. Like Ben Ramos, the only one that looked like that that they cared. Antonio, our striker was a turnover machine. Kurt Zuma. I know, I don't like him either. Don't have to boo. We don't have to boo. It does look like he's injured, though. It looks, I feel like he's limping is like slower than usual, which sucks so much because we don't have, we literally don't have any fit center backs. We have to play Ben Johnson, who's a great player, great fullback, but he is a fullback. He's not a center back. And so it's just, it's just like, it, it's like it, patchwork is our, our defense. It, it is, we're, I, at some point, I'm going to have to suit up and, and play center back because that, that's how bad it is right now. Ugh, just so many bad decisions from everyone uh, from the board to david moyes to 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 the players even like i don't think diop is a good player right it's a diop who got sold to fulham but why sell him when we're down so many center backs right like like why sell vlasic when we need attacking bodies i am not convinced of lanzini necessarily he, he got subbed on. I was like, okay, great, Lanzini. Ben Rama, he played well, but I, I'm not always convinced of him. Cornet, I know, is going to be a, a great player. Uh, just got to give him time. But why sell him when, when we need bodies? When so many of the players that make up our team right now, we have like 24 players, half of them are, not half of them, a third of them are academy procs who are still raw and probably not ready for the first team yet, right? Why not give Skamaka, our new striker, a start? When Antonio didn't look good last season, or yeah, last season and last game, until it was, we didn't look good until Skamaka came on, and yet you start Antonio. I don't care if it's, if it's against lesser opponents. I don't care if Skamaka is not 100% up to game speed. Whenever he's on, he's played better than Antonio. So why not give him a start? And of course, why do you put Declan Rice on penalties? It was so much easier when Mark Noble took penalties because we knew he was going to make almost all of them. Declan Rice, even last season, he had like a very close like penalty being saved, or maybe he'd got one saved, I don't know. He took a penalty. It was not a good penalty. It had the pace, but the, the placement just was not there, right? It just was not there. Just, just barely writes to Dean Henderson's, uh, the right of Dean Henderson. Dean Henderson, by the way. Very good, very good uh, save. Very good game overall. Probably a man of the match uh, in my eyes. But why do you put Declan Rice there when you literally have Ben Rama, who's made them, Suchek, who's made them, Antonio and Bowen, who's made them? Declan Rice, I know he's the captain. I know you're trying to appease him, but it's just not his strength. It's just not his strength. I'm shaking my head right. It's not his strength. Uh, but, you know, credit to Nottingham Forest. They did great. They, I think, brought in 14 new players, including, of course, Jesse Lingard. Uh, and I think if they can continue this on, they can really justify their expenditure because, no offense, uh, their team before definitely was a championship-level team. But if they can just 
even just eke out a safety this season, that'll all be worth it. Uh, Steve Cooper is a great coach. He's a great coach at uh, at Swansea. He's a great coach here too. So congratulations to them once again. So yeah. Uh, lastly, I'll, I'll, very very quick. Then I gotta go and guess I'm sleep or whatever. Uh, MLS is in the thick of things. I just want to point out. Uh, I tweeted this, and I still believe it. Uh, but it's it's been a crazy season. It's been a crazy crazy season because you look at you look at some of the teams like in the East, right? Just just to go over where we are in, in like with uh, ten games to go, pretty much. Philadelphia, Montreal, NYCFC at the top of the East. You expected Philadelphia and NYCFC to be there. Montreal. A little bit of surprise there. A little bit of surprise there. I think uh, Jordan Mihaljevic took off his assisting boots and put on his scoring boots. He's uh, up there along with uh, Kyoto as their top goal scorer. Very, very good from them. Red Bulls kind of faltering, kind of faltering. Have not been great at all. At all. Aaron Long, disappointing. Columbus Crew are also up there. Orlando City and Inter-Miami. Inter-Miami. Obviously the interesting one. Atlanta United and Toronto FC near the bottom. Two teams that you'd expect to do better, especially with Toronto FC signings and where Atlanta United was before. But unfortunately, no for them. In the West, you have a lot of teams. Like, you, you literally have from FC Dallas that you're in third place to, the, you know, eighth place Portland Timbers, only separated by six points. Very, very impressive. We'll see how that uh, turns out. Very tight West. Some teams that you probably expected to do pretty well. Seattle, Colorado, Sporting Kansas City, for one reason or another, are doing badly. And I've said my piece on why I think that the level of parity and the level of like up and downs teams can go through season on season is just not good for the league. But alas, that's not what I'm talking about. Talking about Austin FC and LAFC, I said that I've not seen two teams be this dominant in a league in MLS, I should say, in such a long time. And I got some pushback on Twitter saying like, hey, LAFC 2019, how about that? And I was like, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. LAFC 2019 on paper was one of the best MLS teams that we have seen thus far. Maybe if LAFC can continue uh, to put in good performances, they like, this LAFC team could be like the best team on paper of all time in MLS. But I was like, hey, but you know what? Seattle Sounders were a distant second in that 2019 season compared to LAFC. It, it was not particularly close for the Supporter Shield. Austin FC uh, are only six points behind LAFC. Yes, it'll be nine points if LAFC win their game in hand, but still, Austin FC are nine points ahead of FC Dallas. Like, it is like tier one is LAFC in the West, tier two or tier one B, perhaps, Austin FC everyone else in their own tier and yes i know that lafc are dominant and austin fc uh are still maybe a tier below them but let's give credit to where it's due right austin fc have been amazing this season Driussi is probably leading the mvp power rankings right now is their top goal scorer leads uh, is the golden boot leader leads the, the the league in goals plus assists like he is so good so so good it, 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 it's him diego uh fagundes uh ethan finley has gotten some assists too wow 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 uh Uriti, 
is okay. Uh, but Driussi especially, man. Wow. What a player. What a player. Uh, and, oh, good. Uh, Minnesota United play them next. Oh, oh, oh boy. Oh, boy. Uh, but overall, it's very, very good seasons from them. And really, when I, when I look back at it, the last time I could see uh, two teams being dominant compared to everyone else, it's New York Red Bulls and Atlanta United in 2018. And in the West, I have to go back to 2011. LA Galaxy and Seattle Sounders then, the, the, the first and second seed respectively, to see two teams that dominate the West as much as them. And while well, I think LAFC are surefire winners for uh, the Supporters Shield, to see Austin FC up there, like, the, I, let, 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 let's be 100% honest. Those are the two front runners for the West right now. And anything can happen, but you have to believe that those two teams are ready for it in a way that the other, the other like six, eight teams in contention in the West are just not. And we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. All right. Uh, speaking of we'll see, we'll see you guys later because I, my, my voice is so shot now because I've been talking for literally an hour and a half now. Uh, if you guys like the show, at Final Third Show on Twitter.com. Love to see you there. Love to see you uh, tweet back at us or give us some likes, give us some retweets, whatever you want. Uh, Twitter. Twitter. Wait. Oh my gosh. I'm completely losing my mind. Uh, FinalThirdShow.com for a one stop shop on all things Final Third. Uh, yeah, we'll see you guys not this Thursday because I have uh, an exam to study for. Uh, but we'll see you guys same time, same place for a uh, news and predictions episode next week. Tell your friend about the show. I'm sure he'd love to hear about Anthony Taylor just destroying uh, Chelsea. Tell your dad about the show. I'm sure that he would love to hear uh, hear Barcelona's woes. Hear Barcelona's woes. Hear about Manchester United's woes as well. All right. Uh, well, uh, hope you guys enjoy the show and uh, see ya. That's where Jack says uh, bye for now. So I'll just say that. Bye for now.